Guys, listen, listen. I gotta ask you a question. What forgotten actor would you like to revive interest in? Uh, I got fascinated in the last couple of years by a guy named Arthur Lake. He only had a couple of films that, that mattered. He was in Topper and some minor roles, but he was mostly known for playing Dagwood in the film versions of the comic strip Blondie. But what makes Arthur Lake interesting is he worked on uh, Blondie. He made like 26 films as as Dagwood, which I think means he's the longest running single actor performance of a comic book character. While he was doing Blondie, he became friends with William Randolph Hearst, started hanging out, and ended up marrying a girl that Hearst had supposedly taken in as his ward. But it turns out, years later, unbeknownst to Arthur, was the illegitimate child of William Randolph Hearst. And then, uh, yeah, Arthur just didn't have to act anymore because he was so rich off fucking Hearst money. Was also a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder, for real. I find Arthur Lake fascinating. I ended up buying, I, I bought an old autograph of Arthur Lake's off of eBay for a grand total of $7. So it shows you about how well known Arthur Lake is, but I find Arthur Lake fucking fascinating. Why the fuck am I friends with you? <laughs> I don't have some weird deep dive history lesson to tell you. I Warren Oates. I mean, he's just one of those guys, man. He, whenever he showed up in a movie back in the sixties and seventies, he was just like, Oh, this, this, this guy's great. He's like the proto Walton Goggins, so, uh, you know, I, I feel like everybody should love this guy and know about this guy. Grab your monkey caskets, because we're going to be talking about 1950s Sunset Boulevard here on You're Missing Out, with special guest Phil Iscove. This episode, to talk about Sunset Boulevard, we are joined by someone uh, you may know if you've listened to our previous show. He is one of the creators of Sleepy Hollow. He is uh, now involved with the show Station 19 and, of course, the co-host of the great film podcast, uh, Podcast Like It's 1989, which uh, me and Tom are both uh, big fans of. Phil Escove has joined us and he chose uh, Sunset Boulevard as his film. Hey, guys. It's been, what, a, a year since we last uh, talked on Mike, right? Has it only been a year? So roughly, yeah. I think it was like a little more than <laughs> a year. Like, I think it was a year was and some change. Of right? March. It was the yeah. end of March we did the last show together. That's, uh, that's insane. It literally feels like it was 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, every month is a decade, so. Yeah. Every month is a decade, but it goes by like a day. It's like, oh, it's been 10 years today. Oh, but yeah. now it's July. What? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> no, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, I guess that, I guess that does make sense. Yeah, we were, we were in, uh, Kenny and I came to New York. We did a couple episodes with uh, with the Blank Check guys, and uh, it was great. I'll say this before we get into the film, and Kyle can cut this up, but uh, back when Kyle was still in New York, we had a conversation about, because uh, you and I had that day, I was at work, and you and I had gotten into like a big Twitter back and forth. So, and it was, was yeah, it we got, I don't remember what it was uh, about. It was about, uh, it was something about, I, I, I had talked about movies I didn't like, you liked some of them, and we just went back, and it got real fucking heated. It was one of those ones where, like, it was one of those ones where it was like a forty tweet thread, uh, and then like an hour later, we're dimming it. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And so Kyle, Kyle asked, he's like, "Are you guys like good? Are you guys like friends? <laughs> like, what's the deal?" So to just clarify our dynamic for everyone, um, I I think you and I are kind of uh, we have the dynamic of um, your freshman college roommate. You maybe don't have everything in common. You somehow wound up stuck together, and for whatever reason shit that other people do and would just roll off your shoulders when that person does it it just drives you wild we've argued about inane shit on twitter that like which would in in no other world would would matter uh i i hear you and, and i certainly <laughs> have no uh ill will towards you in any way shape. no no 
I mean, other than the fact that you need to drop the Wild Wild West bit, but other than not that, a bit. I mean, not a bit. Oh, that oh he no, he absolutely has to. He has to stop it. He has to now. You know who agrees with you? Everyone. Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. Barry Sonnenfeld, a man who I one of the last things I did at my job at the movie theater before they laid us off. Barry Sonnenfeld came for a live show. And uh, I did his meet and greet in a full Jim West costume. Was he was he embarrassed for you? Uh, he did not seem amused yeah, in any way. I bet he did. <laughs> not an ounce of amusement. Well, part of the problem with doing that, just to, to wrap up here, uh, is that it can seem like you're making fun of him. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you did yeah. put that together prior to putting on said costume. But, but. I mean, also I, let's not forget that he didn't put blackface on or anything but he's wearing a black man's costume correct he is he yeah. is uh listen he signed my vhs of the movie right. and that's all right. that matters so wonderful moment let's talk about all right a, let's talk about yes. a good so movie. let's we are gonna i'm gonna read what the national film registry says is their reason for inducting the film arguably the greatest movie about hollywood director billy wilder's masterpiece is a combination of noir black comedy and character study Aging silent film star Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, persuades down-in-his-luck screenwriter Joe Gillis, William Holden, to polish the behemoth of a script she's been laboring over for decades, and in the process, he becomes her paid companion. One-time titan of the silent screen actor-director Eric von Stroheim adds to the gothic creepiness as Butler Max. The film's often been parodied, but its brilliant dialogue, decadent production design, and wide-ranging acting styles have never been topped. Uh, now, Phil, I gave you the full list. You actually had your full pick of anything that was on there, and you zeroed in Sunset Boulevard. What was it about? Well, just to be, uh, yeah, I was just of, of the, the first year, year, I should say. Um, yeah, we're only doing the the, the original induction year right. for the season. So, um, I think that ultimately the reason I landed on this, it really came down to this in Casablanca for me. But this movie is just, it's it's perfect. <laughs> like I'm just, it's it's one of those things where I, I have to be completely upfront and say, I, you know, I went to film school. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of classic movies. I certainly don't think that I've seen enough of them. There are many, many movies that I need to see. Um, so I am by no means a, a film historian, so I don't want to, you know, uh, suggest that I am. So looking at that list, I wanted to make sure that I could talk about something that, you know, one of these films, not just intelligently, but, you know, passionately. And this was the one that I felt like, I don't think there's a better movie made about Hollywood um about what it you know what drives a person to to do what we do out here i guess to some degree i also just think it's like i mean it's billy wilder like you just you, he's untouchable I, I mean the the amount of films that he's made that you're just that you look at and you're just like oh it seems effortless effortlessly perfect like it's a mastery of tone of 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 cinematography of of direction just all of it it's one of those things where i was i was sort of i did a whole list or i looked at a list of like you know movies about hollywood and there are lots of great ones i really love the player i think mulholland drives a masterpiece i like wag the dog like there's lots of good movies about hollywood but this one really taps into what i think is maybe the most i don't want to say important detail but it's the thing that i that i took away from it i actually I, I watched this film, um, as everybody knows, we're in a pandemic right now, but uh, my roommate and I, we do an AFI movie night every Saturday night with a group of friends on Zoom, and we're working our way through the AFI list. And we watched Sunset Boulevard probably, I don't know, I want to say like six, maybe eight weeks ago, something like that. And I wanted to watch it again before doing this podcast with you guys. And then watching it 
twice in such you know quick succession, if you will. It really hit me that this film is about it's it's first of all it's tragic, but it's really sort of about longing. It it perfectly personifies the desperation that lies under the surface of what I think is everybody in Hollywood. That everyone is just like is is dangling by a thread to a certain degree or another. Even the most successful people are are striving for something, some unattainable goal, most likely. Some everyone has some sort of a void that they're trying to fill with this industry. And I think that this movie just perfectly encapsulates that. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned Billy Wilder. Uh I I just want to make a note of that induction year. Just testing how good he is. Of that induction year, uh, he is one of only three directors that gets two movies in the in the first year. That's right. Because Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot both get in, which is uh, you know a pretty impressive achievement. Uh, just from that, just from that at first twenty five. Now, Tom, this was I believe your first time seeing. Yeah, is that this correct? was my first time. Um, it was always something I've been meaning to see, but um, my my mind takes me to disparate various places with cinema so sometimes i'll watch some high art and then sometimes i'll spend the entire week watching the first five movies of steven seagal so you know yeah as as one does as one does in the middle of a pandemic where my mind is turning slowly into mush well we have to be kind to ourselves under these circumstances and if that makes you happy then then you should do that i don't know if happy is necessarily the word with any (laughs) steven seagal uh viewing but um more like curiosity just is he human? I don't know. I mean, I think he's a human. <laughs> That's what you. I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, if you, alien, if you, but... I don't know. You, you watch him t- try to talk. You watch him try to emote, and then he runs like he's made out of like seven different parts. Interesting. Interesting take. You know what's? I I should say it is. It is kind of weirdly. I'm glad you brought up Steven Seagal, Tom. Uh, which is the only time I'll ever say that. When you look at where Steven Seagal is now. You know, he makes he just makes these direct video action films and his ego and his vanity has allowed him to be in a situation where he's essentially praising Putin and has uh, and will just cling to whoever will give him adoration. It is about how Hollywood, I mean, at least sort of how Hollywood chews up and spits out these people. But what I thought was so interesting about Sunset Boulevard, but I think it's so interesting about the film is that so many times we see those sort of star is born stories. And it's always like the evil, corrupt agents and the evil, corrupt X, Y, Z ruining a good person. And this movie is exceptionally empathetic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I it's it's interesting because as you were as you were saying that something kind of hit me um, that I that I've often thought about, which is that um, this town doesn't run on money, despite the fact that everyone thinks that it does. It runs on relevancy. This movie, to your point, in terms of its compassion and its empathy towards people that have lost that relevancy. It's, I mean, if you look, I mean, and I don't want to skip too far ahead. We don't have to go through linear through the film, but there is no clear villain. You go back to like a star is born, you know, the, the most recent star is born. And that movie is, you know, largely empathetic. But then you have Lady Gaga's agent basically shows up and goes, hey, Bradley Cooper, what if you killed yourself? That might sell her <laughs> records. Whereas in this, the main conflict is between Joe Gillis and, um, and Max, Eric Ostroheim's character. but. Neither one's the bad guy. It's just that one is saying the best thing to do for her is to free her of these delusions. And the other is saying the best thing to do for her is just let her live this fantasy. I think what you're tapping into is, you know, and and again, not to jump ahead, but fuck it, I'm going to jump ahead. If people haven't seen this movie, they shouldn't be listening to this. But um, (laughs) the, the end of this film, 
it really locks into what I think is one of the big ideas of this film, which is that Norma's life, even in her arrest, has become a performance, right? She's not a person anymore. She's a persona. That, that the town, that the idea of her has swallowed her, and now she is just this, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, a, a creature that, that thrives on attention. I mean, having these cameras pointed at her, having Max turn her arrest into her quote-unquote final film is the most tragic thing ever. <laughs> but it's, it's you know, th- that's why, in my opinion, it is, it's, it's the quintessential Hollywood movie. It's also, you know, just packed with cameos from all sorts of people of the time. You know, this, is, this was the coolest, hippest movie of its time. And yet, many actresses did not want to take the role of Norma Desmond. And apparently, from what I read, uh, Montgomery Clift was originally going to be doing the William Holden role, and that apparently was involved in a similar situation uh, with a middle-aged former actress, and then he dropped out. I find it so interesting because I decided to do a little research into that Oscar year. Because you look at Sunset Boulevard and you would think, well, this has got a fucking sweep, right? All about Eve, and baby. <laughs> All about Eve wins Best Picture, wins Best Director. What's crazier yeah. is that it does n- neither of them wins Best Actress. I know. They they, they went to it. yeah they they split the vote. It went to a uh, Judy Holiday for a movie called Born Yesterday, mm-hmm. which is a good performance, by the way. Like it's a good movie, and she's good in it. It's I I watched it. It's it's a solid flick. But what's interesting yeah. is William Holden's also in that. Yep, playing a it's- radically different. <laughs> character which is just so yeah for for those of you i'm tom i'm assuming you've not seen born yesterday uh, i Shot in the Dark have here. not it is a very i i guess like think maybe bullets over broadway in in a sense like very kind of farcical you know she's it's one of those mighty uh, kind of component to it it's like yeah. it's got a very kind of like you know a, a mobster's mall character who's very sort of got a crazy voice and she seems ditzy and stupid but she's actually really smart has figured everybody yeah out. one of those like classic they always give them the line of like i'm dumb but i ain't stupid like those kind of things uh yeah. so it's, yeah. but not quite all about eve or sunset boulevard <laughs> no, you know not quite yeah not, I mean, they, not up they, there they definitely canceled each other out i think that it's yeah uh, they're two of the most iconic performances in the history of cinema and and i think that most people were probably split about who to go with and my guess is that it was a close count no matter what. But yeah. what's also interesting, and not you know, to, uh, yeah. other actors that were up for the role of Norma Desmond, Mae West, who wanted to rewrite yep. the dialogue. Um, apparently, uh, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett even went to, um, to talk to Mary Pickford about it. But her horrified reaction as they were telling the story, they stopped halfway through and apologized and left which I think is amazing. One thing that I thought was great, I, uh, I, you know, when I was in college, I got really into the French New Wave, uh, much to Tom's frustration. Very frustrating. Uh, and and love that whole, love that whole Cahiers du Cinema crowd. And I had no idea that the very first issue of Cahiers du Cinema uses the image of Gloria Swanson and William Holden in the screening room on its cover. Oh, that's awesome. That's how kind of quintessentially yep. cinema this movie is. It's It's just like, you're not, I don't know. It's like I, I, I watched it, as I mentioned, with a bunch of friends for, for our AFI club, and a couple of them had not seen it. Uh, one of my friends, who's actually a, a filmmaker, uh, had never seen it, which to, to his chagrin, he was like, I can't believe I haven't seen this, but like, you know. And we watch it, and you're just, it's one of those films where you're like, oh, that's where it came from, you know? 
No. Uh, that's the thing about watching classic movies where you're just like, by osmosis, by being into pop culture or movies, y- you you soak up these details. So then when you sit down to watch a film, you're like, oh, that's where it came from. Like my roommate, we watched uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and she was like, oh, I've seen this. It was called Legally Blonde. <laughs> like, yeah, like it's, you know, it's just it's it's. Oh, I've seen this. How Mel is. Gibson did this on The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny. It's funny you say that because the reason I saw this for the first I first saw it when I was maybe seven or eight years old. Sunset Boulevard. My parents were the type where I mean, they were pretty, you know, they, they knew movies, especially like classic movies. And if I mentioned something or I didn't know something, uh, we would just go to Blockbuster and rent it. And I remember we had gone to see an animated movie, a forgotten animated film called Cats Don't Dance. And the character that one, the main, you know, the main antagonist of the film is like a Shirley Temple washed up has been type. And she has a big brooding manservant named Max, which is like a full on the Max von Stroheim character. So we got out of the movie and I remember my mother was like, yeah, and she was like, I, I said something about Max. And she goes, oh, you don't know what that is? That's that's Sunset Boulevard. And of course, again, I'm seven. So why would I know that? But so we went right down to Blockbuster. We rented it that day. I just remember it was one of the most unsettling things I'd ever seen, especially if you're a kid. It's a movie that's there's no happy ending. There's no message other than like, ah, the passage of time is going to claim us all. I don't think that the film is nihilistic. I don't, I don't, I'm not I don't, I, I, as yeah. an adult. I don't see it that way. But like, as I'm saying, as, as a kid, you know, you're watching it. If there's a and I'm not saying this is a horror film, but in the context of a kid, if you're a kid, you're used to like the good, you know, the, the heroes get away at the end. It's interesting that you say a horror film because watching it, um, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me was was the structure of it a little bit. Um, it does play like uh, a mix between like a horror film and a, and a grim fairy tale up top. You know, when, when, you, when his, you know, he gets his flat tire, which forces him into the driveway of this spooky gothic house. It's got a very Hansel and Gretel kind of component of like, he's lured into the house. Uh, he can't leave. Uh, it's incredibly gothic when he gets in there. I mean, the first scene is of this, uh, we'll get into it, but the fucking dead monkey. Uh, looking at this in comparison to films today that I kind of respect is... Billy Wilder knows what he's doing with this. He knows the story he's telling and he knows what he's alluding to. And he's never cued about it. Yeah. You know, yep. You, yep. He's, it's a very clever movie that never once seems to think it's clever. Because even you know? the framing device in the wrong hands could feel like too cute. You know, one of the worst things with yeah. movie, yep. a movie could do is do that thing. Oh, we're going to show you the, the ending and then flash back, which you just then spend the rest of the movie going, okay, Jesus Christ, we know what's going to happen. Why did you do this? You could have just done this. It like, it adds to that fairy tale quality that Phil was bringing up that there's like, it's a tragedy. And like, you're just waiting for like, you're watching a slow motion train wreck that you just like, fuck, no, don't God, Joe, don't go in the house. Yeah. Don't make, don't agree to make the movie with her. God damn it, Joe. Don't become her boyfriend. Now the scene that really struck me watching it this time was I, I just, you know, in your brain, you, you know, you remember certain things about a movie. You don't remember all the moments. So, of course, I remember the fact that she's, you know, the washed up star. And I remembered that they don't want her. They want the Uzoto Fushini. But I had forgotten that when she goes to the set to see DeMille, mm-hmm. in my brain, I'm just bracing myself for, well, of course, they only want the Fushini, so no one's going to give a shit. But instead, when she goes to that set, all the actors crowd around her. Yep. And the spotlight is on her. And it's such a beautiful, a hackier filmmaker would have had just what I expected, which is, Oh, no one remembers her. Let's really belabor the point. But no, they do remember Norma Desmond. And Cecil B. DeMille is very compassionate to her. 
and it doesn't until, until the end. Until the end. Yes, but I mean, you know, but I mean, in that moment, as in when he's like, "Take the spotlight over, leave her be," you know, it, there's there is a sense. Uh, it's not belaboring the point that she's like, "Oh, no one knows who she's." No, of course she is a for you know. It's the same way that when they trot out, uh, you know, a I'm not going to name names, but you know, sometimes they'll trot out a an older actress at the Oscars. And everyone will give a standing ovation. And they're all reacting like, oh, God, we haven't seen her in forever. And it's like, well, half you people could see her if you just wanted to give her a job. But you don't. But you don't. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it is. Intri- I mean, there's. Yeah, I, I to, to, to circle back real quick to what um, the earlier point of like the, the voiceover. And, you know, I it, it's so funny because um, in this pilot that I wrote, uh, recently we were writing it with another writer and there's a lot of meta textuality in it um and in fact we actually have a, a a sunset boulevard uh moment in it we were talking about voiceover and how voiceover has this bad reputation of being you know hacky or 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 shitty and 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 not a particularly effective device um and then you watch this movie and you're like oh no it's a fucking incredible device when done well i mean this is the first movie that I can think of anyway that does the whole the narrator is dead and they're narrating their own movie. I mean, you don't technically I mean, obviously, you know that that's him because we see him alive a few scenes later. But like the full circleness of it, the, the, the self-referential component of it, the fact that it's um, that it's a movie that knows it's a movie um, and and yet is as tragic as it is, it is just. Well, I like that it's even in his death that even in his death that Joe would still like write his own story as like it was a movie. Yeah, that there's that meta textuality to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he always wanted a pool. He did always want a pool. Did you see Phil? I was I was researching something and I found out that that was not originally how Wilder had had shot the intro. No, I didn't know that. That originally, originally, apparently, and I I wish I could source it. I'll maybe put it in the show notes. But that he was uh, originally it started with uh, at the L.A. County morgue Uh, and that apparently uh, Wilder loved how the scene came out. But it was it was Gillis's body's been rolled into the morgue and you heard voiceovers from a bunch of these corpses saying things like, oh, where did you drown the ocean? No, a swimming pool. Well, you know, I had a couple extra holes in me, blah, 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 that that kind of stick. (laughs) Then they they yeah, they tested it in uh, Illinois, Long Island and Poughkeepsie. And apparently all the audiences started laughing during the morgue scene. So they yep. uh, delayed the film and reshot it because it did not play. It's so interesting that you say that, too, because the pool plays so ominously in the film that on some level, I mean, obviously he knew that he died in the pool. So that's why the pool plays so ominously. But to not open on the pool, like, it is such a... It was such a mistake. Like, did, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just love that it's always like luring in the background, just lingering. It's, it's such a great visual way to signify the decline of her status, you know, and to show like how he's gonna end up dead in the pool, which was such a big. Yep. As much as you yep. could say the decrepit mansion or the uh, freaking car from the '30s or whatever show that she's out of touch out of time she's haunting this place the pool you know like even he says i wish i had a pool you know a pool is such a back then such a status symbol and that 
he he chases the money and he even gives up the girl yeah, still is yeah he chases he gives up the girl he you know all of this stuff and what does he do he ends up his final resting place is a pool and i will say what's interesting is that actually gets it the movie couldn't have known this but somehow history has made that pool even more uh, of a bleak symbol because Sunset Boulevard is obviously all about the death of this, you know, kind of old Hollywood figure and that, that whole idea of old Hollywood, you know, I got big, the pictures got small. Yep. That, do you know where that pool was reused? Oh, fuck. I, I did read this, but tell me. It was, it was reused as the emptied out pool in the abandoned house in Rebel Without a Cause. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, just a few year, so just a few years after this pool was built for a movie about how stars like Gloria Swanson were fading and Hollywood had forgotten them, one of the movies that was like the symbol of this new version of Hollywood, these young people taken over, ends up using the exact same pool, but they've drained it and somehow made it look even sadder. So now yeah, to look at it is go. somehow even more. Double down. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no way they could have meant it, but it just makes the whole thing more ominous. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie, it's, it's really interesting because you talk about the, that, uh, to circle back to that, that original opening, it really harkens back to the fact that. So apparently in an interview somewhere, Walder talked about how it was supposed to be a comedy at first, um, that, you know, which makes sense. I mean, that, that he, you know, he, he, I guess you would say he was primarily maybe a comedy writer, depending on how you look at it. But um, it was going to be a comedy, perhaps with Mae West and Marlon Brando, who knows. But, but you can see how this film can tip one way or the other, right? Like, that's the brilliance of this movie, is that, it exists in this sort of acerbic, dark, comedic world, right? I mean, this feels like a good time to talk about the monkey because the monkey is like the monkey shouldn't work, <laughs> like it it should not work. You know, he's he's lured into this house. They think he's there because you know why wouldn't you uh, think he's the man to bring the casket for the dead monkey that you have. <laughs> In your bedroom. As, as you as, as you want to do. As you want to do. And, you know, it's, it is, it, is there anything more darkly comedic than, oh, I had a monkey and he died, and now I need to have my monkey funeral in the dead of night in my backyard? Like, it's just, it's, it's the fucking best. And it shows how this movie's a high wire act of tone. Because that, I mean, that should derail the movie. Oh, it should be relevant. I mean, just to, we'll get back. Just a quick sidebar here is that another way that this movie with its visuals has rippled throughout time. Michael Jackson famously had a monkey. Michael Jackson, in many ways, kind of became a Norma Desmond figure in the later parts of his life. So way to go, Billy Wilder on call on that shot 60 years early. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but like what Billy Wilder is to get back to the tone thing. Billy Wilder, he's got some like it hot on the same list in the same year, but he also does double indemnity. He does ace in the hole. He does so many different things. The apartment is maybe the best example of how after this, maybe the best example of how he can just, just balance these crazy tones because yep. I mean, he, he's a clearly a smart guy, but he's also a German, a German Jew that lived through the Holocaust, lost family yep. in the Holocaust. So he, he's a guy who kind of understands that like, yeah, at any moment, like all these funny things could just like stop being funny and everything's bad. One thing I'll say about Wilder is I think that he is his comedy and his drama are two sides of the same coin because ultimately they both 
whether it's a serious kind of film like Ace in the Hole or Sunset Boulevard or a comedy like Some Like It Hot or The Apartment, they're they're all rooted in the absurdity of the situation, taking a situation and exposing how absurd it is. So where The Apartment, it's both funny and tragic because he's looking at, hey, all these guys are cheating on their wives in this one guy's apartment, you know, and, and look at look at the look at the chaos this causes. And it's both funny and sad because it's one, it's one of those things we laugh at because you kind of have to laugh. Otherwise, you would think about how bleak it is. You look at Sunset Boulevard and you look at the monkey funeral and, you, you know, you're as Phil, you mentioned how, you know, it should derail a film. But instead, you'd be sitting, you're sitting there watching that scene going, this would be funny if it wasn't so sad. But then you jump over to the apartment and some of the bits in that and you go, oh, this would be sad if it wasn't so funny and it kind of like it just ever straddles that line well, i think it's because billy wilder what makes one of the many things that makes him so great is he could get so close to making you think these characters are meant to be jokes but he he never sacrifices the character for a cheap joke he never undercuts them by saying oh look at how silly they are he he always says they're human they may be tragic figures. They may, you know, it's kind of funny the whole way through, but because they're so human, when Shirley MacLaine tr- tries to kill herself, it can easily snap into that serious moment. You never feel like the movie cheats or becomes something different. You feel like this is all natural, which like Sunset Boulevard, there's so many different scenes where it can go from this is funny to, oh my God, this feels like I'm in hell now. No, for sure. I mean, it's juggling so many knives all at once, which is again, Part of its obviously part of its brilliance. I think it also just feels like you know. Uh, have you guys seen Double Indemnity? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like that to me, which I also think is a fucking perfect movie. But it's just the the tone of Double Indemnity is. I mean, that's a straight up film noir. I mean, it's yeah. really not deviating in any in any you know consequential way from that. Um, and you can feel its influence on this for sure. You can feel sort of the noirish elements that this film has, but it's also it's it's more self conscious. It understands what it's doing, whereas Double Indemnity is like just you know a relatively straight line. I also feel like part of it is the inside joke of it all. You know, I I saw I, I mean I I don't know if I saw Sunset Boulevard first, but I remember watching The Player um, when I was a teenager. And again, I, I mean, obviously I didn't work in this industry, but I had a general idea of Hollywood. The player is such a, a self-conscious film that understands sort of its skewering of Hollywood. Obviously, Robert Altman, not really a fan of Hollywood. You don't but say. This, <laughs> but this film, it, it, it almost, like Wilder's just, I, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Wilder's a better filmmaker than Altman, but they're both great. But Wilder has a way of, skewering you but you're enjoying it whereas altman is really kind of saying fuck you this doesn't feel like a fuck you to hollywood this feels like a cautionary tale well i think it's because it it gets to that thing of the the empathy thing where like altman is just straight up like saying everyone in this industry is kind of a clown and is really selfish and everything uh where in this movie um you know the scene where they where she goes to the studio and Demille is trying to like not break her heart is like uh, uh, Altman would have made that scene a lot more kind of dark and cynical and oh a hundred percent hundred percent it, yeah. it would have played a lot it, it would have played a lot differently I mean you know it it, it I it, that, I mean that's just one that one scene I feel like is kind of the, 
the way if, if Altman was doing it, you would say, nah, this, uh, even if everything before it was the same, this one scene, he would have made it that DeMille's kind of an asshole and he's, he doesn't care that he's cutting this woman down or whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, Altman has no, I mean, he has no sympathy for Hollywood. I mean, he has no sympathy for the business of this town. I mean, I, or, or didn't anyway. I mean, it definitely, I mean, we're talking about two very different filmmakers who had very different, obviously, uh, perspectives on the world and yeah. perspectives on the industry that they were lucky enough to work in. But but this film, I just think, is, is, is so much more of a um, be careful what you wish for, you know? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a lot more of that. Like you say you want into this business, you say that you want this, but like how much of yourself are you willing to sell? How much of yourself are you willing to, you know, is it worth it? I mean, at the end of the film, when, um, when Betty shows up and is just trying to save Joe from himself and he's just like, I mean, I would never get rid of any of the things that I have now. Like the hooks are so deep in him at that point. He's, he's, Sold his soul so many times over to Norma by that point yep. that it's just he's he's a lost soul, which I mean I think gets to an even deeper thing that what maybe not deeper thing but another element that Wilde is working on with this movie is the the quest for art or for money. You know, Joe may be struggling in the beginning, but he's doing what he feels like is true to him his art, and then he takes the money and. He just he he can't let go once he's got once the money's got its hooks in him in the form of Nez Norma. There's yeah. there's no way pulling that back out, which um, another great element, I think, of, that, of the movie is the relationship with um uh, I forget her name, but the the girl that he starts the affair Betty? with Betty. Yeah, that 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 whole relationship and how he he kind of knows he can't go back to the way things used to be. So he's like trying to help her right and like yeah take take for sure yeah take take my ideas whatever like i I don't care anymore like do stick to the art don't don't be like me i want to piggyback on that for a quick second and say that you know when we meet joe after obviously uh when we rewind and we meet joe in his apartment with that beautiful i mean the photography in this film is so deceptively simple as well i mean that beautiful shot through through his window into his apartment um i mean just gorgeous but um, he's in his apartment and through voiceover, he tells us that he's been writing two scripts a week. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. So like this, this guy is, is he's a bit of a huckster, right? Like he's a guy who's, he's, he's clearly, you know, past his prime, if you will, or he's not making his best material. You know, the scene in the, with the studio executive, I mean, he is desperate for a sale, right? Yeah. So we're, we're meeting this guy at his lowest point creatively. Um, what he might've been like, years previous is hard to say but it's hard to feel like this guy was ever really cresting like it always felt like he was clinging to some sort of a, a you know ability or talent that he might have um which is why he's so susceptible to to norma you know he's just someone wants him and someone wants his writing i mean it's that's all he needs one other thing i noticed it's a minor thing but you know there's a little kind of inference in this film Besides just us guesstimating, there's an inference about how meaningless Joe's death is going to be. Because you would think... He says it. He's like, you're just another fucking... He says it in his opening VO. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, as in like... Just another the film, dead writer. When you... Well, there's... But there's another thing in here that struck me, which is I found like way shocking. Um, do you remember? So Joe goes to the party. 
He goes to this party that's held by I forget the character's name, but it's um Jack Webb from Dragnet hosts it. Yeah. Yeah, his buddy. And, yeah. yeah. And uh he goes and the friend is like making a loud introduction to him, and one of a joke he makes is suspect in the Black Dahlia murder, which was which had <laughs> he says that. Now the crazy thing is the Black Dahlia murder had just happened like two years prior, and they're already exactly. joking about it. And that kind of well, it was pretty it was pretty funny. Let's be real, it was pretty funny. <laughs> Not funny at all. Not funny. Kyle, just isolate that clip and let's just ruin uh, Phil's career. <laughs> I just to be very clear, not funny. But I'm just you know. <laughs> three weeks later, Phil's floating down in a pool, just going, "I shouldn't have made that joke." That's where it all went shouldn't downhill. I joke. shouldn't. <laughs> bad idea. Bad um, idea. But it, like, I I even texted Tom when that happened. And I was like, "That's fucking wild that up. they're it's making that up. joke." But it does kind of. I think it leans into the idea of. I mean, you're right. He says another dead writer, but just the idea of. Right. Hollywood is yep. just already joking about Black Diet. So no, no one's going to give a shit. I think also what's gr- it's again the brilliance and and the depth of this screenplay is that much like the scene where the, when Norma goes to DeMille's set is that this entire industry can run on the backs of people that aren't in front of the camera and they'll work and work and work forever, but nobody will give a shit about them. Nobody will know their names, much like Joe. Norma kills him and she's now the story. Joe is just the side piece, this this side part of the story that everyone's going to forget. This story is now going to be, hey, you remember when that uh, silent film actress killed the guy? What was his name? Oh, I don't know. But Norma Desmond, isn't that crazy? So I was watching the party scene and I recognized Jack Webb. Do you remember the two girls giggling by the phone? Vaguely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of them looked familiar to me. So I, I started digging it up and uh, it was the actress Yvette Vickers. I bring this up because Yvette Vickers uh, would later appear in Attack of the 50 Foot Woman. And she was in Playboy. She had like a small, you know, career. But mm-hmm. what I found interesting is here's Yvette Vickers. This is her like first screen role. Uh, do you know how, what happened to Yvette Vickers? Oh, God. I feel like her, her last name is familiar. She was later found dead in her home, but she was found essentially mummified because she right. had died in her home. And the coroner's estimated that nobody found her body for a year. Oh, my God. God. Jesus and I just Christ. reading uh, and I, I bring that up solely because reading that while watching reading that about an actor who appeared in the movie about how this industry will just leave you to rot and forget about you was quite haunting because it kind of Yeah, no, that that feels uh, almost it, on the nose. It it makes you feel like it's like <laughs> okay, we like here, I want to I want to ask this and and I have a feeling I know the answer but I want to ask this. Now, we've we've all watched this film now and I can I think it's safe to say we all really enjoy this film. Right? I believe so, yes. Yeah. You know. Okay, and it, it had an impact on us. And, and I've seen this before, Phil, you've seen this before. How many of us have seen any other Gloria Swanson movies? Uh, I think zero. Uh, unless I, I don't from, think I've seen any of her other films. Unless they yeah. showed us some shit in college that I don't remember. I, even I have, I've only seen her in one other thing. And it was last year I watched a movie she did called, I think, Indiscretion. Um, okay. And it was only because it had another actor in it that I was doing some research on. And I thought of that because I think it's kind of interesting that we watch this movie, right? And you watch this and you think about how sad it is people kind of forgot about Norma, right? The film's kind of yeah. laying in this idea of how, you know, this person had a life and a legacy and, and it seems like no one cares. And, and yet, even with this absolutely 
you know, career defining performance as as Norman Desmond. I, afterwards, you walk out of this movie that really affects you, and yet nobody really seeks out more Gloria Swanson stuff. She's kind of only remembered as Norma Desmond, even after that, which I I found kind of I, I there's something to that in a way that kind of struck me that she makes this role about how we kind of forget about actors, and yet it didn't really lead to a revival of even her own career. Yeah, it's it's really that that I I mean that is really that <laughs> you know, and I'm not I'm not saying that isn't like we should all go out and watch every Gloria Swanson movie, but it's just kind of striking that. Everybody walked out and went, wow, we, we should not do that to actors anymore. Anyway, let's never talk about her again. And uh, do you know, you know what you just reminded me of with um, the, the Black Dahlia thing is that Hollywood did probably did it before and after. But Dirty Harry made a movie about the Zodiac killer. Clint Eastwood gunning down an active serial killer that the San Francisco police had no like leads on and was still killing people. Imagine imagine if like. Yeah. Imagine if someone made a movie about the Golden State Killer before they actually caught the guy, and he was just still running around killing people. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. Are we bumming you out, Phil? No, no, no. It's all true. It's all <laughs> everything you're saying is, is is a fair point. I don't know, and I don't mean to to say that I'm not trying to do this in some grand like oh the hypocrisy of it, but it is just interesting that we all walked out of that film feeling inspired, like oh we shouldn't treat people like that, but we do. We still do. No, I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's an incredibly valid point, and, and if anything, it makes the film that much more poignant and that much more specific. Which is, you know, literally, the town saw her, saw Gloria put in this, you know, breathtaking, unbelievable performance, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, how, I mean, just unbelievable!" And then did nothing to hire her after that. They learned nothing from this film. But again, like this film is is speaking more to. You know, it's as we said earlier, it's, you know, time is a motherfucker and it's it's it gets it gets us all, unfortunately. And some parts of this industry, um, you know, as as terrible as it is, make it so that certain people just aren't as in vogue at a certain age as they should be. Um, it, and but but again, like that in and of itself is speaking to the problems with Hollywood and the problems with with media in general. Right. Which is that we're 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 told that we peak sometime in our 20s or 30s i guess maybe maybe sooner depending on whatever company is trying to sell you something and that that that's insidious uh and and it's why we you know it's it's why we look at ourselves in the mirror and feel less than when we shouldn't you know it's interesting this actually taps into you know the the thing that ironically or not broke up Billy Wilder from from uh, Charles Brackett which was over a montage in this film where she's where Gloria or or sorry Norma is going through this montage of trying to make herself look younger uh trying to regain her youthful appearance and Brackett was very much against it felt like it was it was giving the wrong message it was saying the wrong thing and Billy Wilder was like but that's the fucking point and they, they, this was sort of the moment when they, they broke up because of her. Now, Tom, I'm going to ask this because you are, you're a big uh, Twin Peaks and, and David Lynch fan. How did you, how did you feel about the, the, uh, the name that pops up in this film? Gordon Cole. There we go. Yep. Gordon Cole. I haven't seen him in 30 years. Yeah, no, it's just seeing that, like, that David Lynch is, like, just kind of seeing one of those, like, Rosetta Stone things with, with one of the masters of modern cinema of a, of a guy that, Maybe you're not going to see too many similarities between him and Billy Wilder, but you could see the structure 
that helps form who David Lynch actually is. Cause I, you know, then again, in many ways, David Lynch was doing a lot of similar shit that is going on with sunset Boulevard, which is the deep rot within something that on its face looks a lot better than it really is. He just pointed at suburbia more, 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 most of the times than Hollywood, even though he does get to that, uh, when he tried to spin off a TV show for twin peaks, that became one of the best movies ever made. Yeah. I mean, tell me that that dead monkey doesn't belong in a Twin Peaks episode. I mean, that, that, that Netflix Netflix just did put out a David Lynch monkey short this year. Yep. It did. It Too did. And it was something. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, it obviously, you know, Mulholland Drive in this film have some similarities. Um, I mean, obviously, just in terms of subject matter. But I think that to your point about, about sort of, David Lynch and 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 this idea of facades and personas and duality, you know, all of that stuff is playing in this film. Norma sort of coming to grips or not coming to grips with who she really is or what people want from her and all of that. I mean, this is that's all, you know, very Lynchian territory. I, I want to point out one more thing that I, I found that I think is, you know, just again, a case of history kind of uh, proving Billy Wilder right. Um, when they bring, when Norma goes onto the Paramount set, they direct her to stage 18, right? That DeMille okay. is shooting, uh, Samson of Delilah, which he was actually shooting at the time, uh, on stage 18. Uh-huh. Uh, and that stage was known as the DeMille stage. Cause that's where he shot on, right? Cecil B. DeMille, this legend, that soundstage is his. Apparently it is no longer referred to as the Cecil B. DeMille stage. Because since all of the Star Trek movies shot on there, it's now called the Star Trek yeah, stage. It's referred. What is it now? Uh, apparently, the, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they. How sad is that? Well, that's the thing. It's like here's Demille, this icon, and even that, even his legacy has kind of stripped away. For you know? as successful as Norman Desmond was at killing somebody, she still ain't killed more men than Cecil B. Demille. This is also true. God damn it. Um, there's. Great Blazing Saddles joke. We got to bring it around. Always with the Blazing Saddles. I think about, it's funny, um, I remember reading, uh, do you guys remember like a couple years ago, Conan O'Brien did an interview, I forget who it was with, but it was just like the, everybody kept reporting it as like the bleakest thing because he was just talking about mortality. There was a quote in there, he said he was talking to Albert Brooks, and he said, you know, apparently he went to Albert and he was like, oh, you made all, you know, I only make TV, you make these great movies, what you do is important, and Albert Brooks says, nothing that any of us do is important, you know, uh, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I remember the paper said that Clark Gable had the face of the century, and, and now who gives a fuck about Clark Gable? And it's kind of, you know... Yeah, he's not wrong. No. I'll say this, I, I, I mean, to play devil's advocate a little bit, but I also do believe this, that, you know, we are, in theory, um, you know, if you, if you make one great thing, you make one great television show or one great movie, whatever the case might be, that can outlive you. I, people still love Clark Gable. So I, I think there's it's a little bit glib to say that 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 there hasn't been a lasting impression by uh, Clark Gable or any number of people. I get where I get his argument, which is that we're all mortal and that like when everything is said and done, Clark Gable is a bag of bones right now. Well, and also I think because he says you know the face of the century, it's the idea of maybe there are you know there are plenty of people who still like Clark Gable and understand Clark Gable, but quite frankly, if you go up to any on the street you know grab a millennial art off the street and go who was the hottest man to ever live they're not going to go hey you remember that guy from it happened one night well i think it also it also gets to the thing at the beating heart of this movie which is hollywood and fame and all that shit is really all about what have you done for me lately and clark yeah. gable ain't done shit for anybody lately because he's dead 
he was he was back in the headlines recently though for uh for for a movie that guess what we're gonna have to t- talk about at some point this season oh yep 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 fun stuff good stuff but yeah no i i so i i kind of found that i think it's the most remarkable thing the main thing i want to get at is just how truly if you if you've if, if you're listening to this and you you saw this movie once maybe a couple years ago i i recommend going back because if you're anything like me you remember the sad stuff you remember the the kind of unsettling elements of it but i, I you don't always remember especially because it's not noted for this just how empathetic it is to all the characters you know just how truly it could have gone a million different ways but it is so compassionate and i think that that's something that's kind of missing in the way that most people would approach a story like this today i i agree with that i think that the compassion that that wilder has for his characters is probably one of his greatest traits uh, as a filmmaker i think that he i think that he you can tell that he loves these characters warts and all um you know it's it's not a surprise that you know cameron crowe's favorite filmmaker was billy wilder i mean i think that a lot of people billy wilder's their favorite filmmaker but but i think that the the tonal stuff the things that he's able to to keep uh in the air but also just the love that he has for the for these flawed people um you know, listen. I'm not going to sit here and ride for every Cameron Crowe movie, but his best movies certainly have that attitude. You mean Elizabeth Town? I was going to say, uh, Phil. You know what? Elizabeth no, we Town. want you to. We want you to sit here and ride for specifically every Cameron Crowe movie. Listen, you're not going to be happy about this, but uh, I do like a lot of those movies. I mean, I, I, I think that Aloha is a bad movie, but the last scene of that movie still makes me cry. So he's doing something right. Like I think that the guy understands human emotions and understands how to trigger things with people whether it's good or bad i think the phone call in elizabeth town is is one of his best scenes i think the movie's a mess but i think that you know so my point here more than anything to get back to billy wilder is more about the fact that um billy wilder was able to sort of understand how to make flawed characters not just relatable but also human um and that's you know that's a that's a, a true gift this feels kind of like one of the early movies that kind of because of his experience really shows you the nitty gritty of filmmaking in a way. But like just as we're all kind of, you know, Phil's an actual writer and me and Mike want to become writers. Just it it gets to that sense of like it's 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 still work, you know, that's yeah. I yeah. mean, especially um, from my point of view of it, that I can you know, I very much understand um, Betty's plight of having to like work all day and spend all night writing because she just she can't do anything else she needs to make money but she also wants to be a writer and it's work it's not like something you just crap out and just go oh she's a genius it's like no you gotta work at this i i I fully agree with that i think that you know i think that the movie is doing a lot of um i don't know it's it's shooting up a lot of flares it's got a lot of red flags about what this town really is but when everything is said and done, it's a job. I mean, I feel incredibly lucky to get to do what I do. But I'll tell you, when I'm sitting in front of my computer screen and that cursor's fucking laughing at me, it's still a job. <laughs> like, it's still, it's, it's, it's just what it is. Um, it's a job that a lot of people wish they could have, but it's a job nonetheless. You know, I think that, you know, it, one of the things I wanted to talk about really briefly was just this idea of one of the worst things that Joe can do to Norma is writing something with another woman the adulterous component of that to her, this idea that he wants to be creative with another person. You know, 
she gets her claws in him in those early scenes because she's she's got a carrot on the end of a string, but she wants him to write for her and she wants him to to work on this script that she's written. Um, she wants to find a creative bond with him. Um, and the fact that he then finds a creative bond with Betty down the road uh, that that's that's the worst cheating that he could do. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because there was something. Now again, you know, Phil, you are a a uh, you know a professional uh, writer. Tom and I at least had experience in in film school, you know, writing scripts. And something that struck me that I didn't get when I was a kid watching this now is, I think we've all and and you, nobody has to name names. We've all had that experience where we have a friend who's an actor, or or we've worked with actors, and they turn around and go. Oh, you know, you're a writer. I have this great idea for a movie. And then they describe it to you and they're just describing a really good part for themselves. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever had that specific. I've, here's what I've had. I've had, I've had certainly the, the, the run up to what you were saying, which is uh, a person, sometimes a family member, sometimes a friend of a family, some of, of someone in my family who is like, I got an idea for a movie. And then they pitch you a story, you know, kind of, sort of, but not really a movie. Um, you know, they, they, uh, I, I've certainly had situations where it's someone said, I've written a script and I think it'd be great. Can you read it and help me get it made? Um, which, which again, like all of this just speaks to sort of a, um, a lack of understanding of how this industry works. Yeah. What I, again, uh, the depth and just inge- ingenuity of the script of how he can just sort of, but the way he works with Norma with the writing and how he works with Betty with the writing just goes to like, sh- like reveal so much about their relationship without really saying it that when he's writing with Norma and he's trying to edit this thing down into a workable story and she's just like, no, this is a great scene for me. And he just goes, okay, fine, whatever. But when, but when he's working with her, they can actually have a legit dialogue about what's good, what's not, or, you know, and she, their initial meetings, basically her telling him like, yeah, this script kind of sucks, but there's like a good scene in here. Let's like work from there. And they do. And there's like a healthy relationship with built on honesty and self critique and not taking things too personally, where with Norma kind of like the prototypical abusive, got your hooks in your relationship. It's all just about what you can do for me. And if you can't do that for me, I'm going to plug you and throw you in the pool. <laughs> That's a, a really good point. And something that I think this movie does really well is show how um, <clears throat> the commodification of creativity, the what have you done for me lately, um, the fact that everyone has, not everyone, but a lot of people have ulterior motives. Um, it's, it's, you know, I, I, again, all of these things that are in this film and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's not hitting you over the head with this stuff. like. We're talking about all of this stuff. Um, these are big, heady, uh, interesting, complex issues. Um, but this film breezes by. Uh, it never feels as though it's it's preaching at you or or you know, it, it it's just a very. It's never on a soapbox. Um, it's a funny, smart movie that is also talking about all of these, you know, pretty deep existential issues. And it it does it part of what helps its pace, I think, is the fact that it begins with him dead. I, I think about and it's not, you know, the same film at all, but um uh, Michael Haneke is a more uh, starts. Oh, really? It's not a similar film. You don't think they're similar? You know. uh, fun fact. As I, I, found, this, I found a more a laugh riot just, just yeah, in my uh, Yes, it's just. Yeah. Start to finish. Start to finish. I was on the floor laughing. 
<laughs> I almost myself died watching more because I couldn't breathe. Phil, you yeah, yeah. you laugh. Let me tell you, Tom, in fact, did laugh when he saw Amor. I know, because we both saw it together at the film forum, and Tom was so unhappy, he just kept making jokes throughout the movie, whispering them to me. So, Well, that's not... He didn't find the movie funny. No. He found an no. opportunity to... to, to <laughs> yes, okay, you know, he wanted the whole film to just be the old man fighting the pigeon. Um, but Amor starts out showing the wife dead in the bed, and then you know starts up the movie, and the reason Haneke said he did that, he goes, I didn't want people focusing on the suspense of where is this going to go? I want you to know where it's going to go so that you can stay, you know, you can stay in the moment and focus on what I'm trying to say. And with Sunset Boulevard, because you know, he winds up dead, even though you don't know for a fact that she shoots him, you still know he winds up dead. You still know he's not getting out of this. So that helps create this feeling as you watch it. You're not trying to guess where the movie's going. You're not trying to figure out some kind of secret twist. You're just all right, I know where he's going. Let's see how he got there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, that there are lots of films that do the, uh, and television shows that do the six weeks earlier or rewind and fracture your narrative in order to keep you um, in suspense, I guess, uh, or, or to sort of open, open with something crazy and then be like, how did this crazy thing happen? Like, I, 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 it's, 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 it's tropey now back then, obviously it wasn't, but you know, you just have to sort oh, of, but I think I, um, I agree with you, but I think that's also comes down to how you intend to use what's going to follow that quote unquote shocking moment. You know, you could be shocked by, for argument's sake, a more if, you know, you didn't immediately follow up her dead by, you know, three weeks earlier and him sitting with the doctor and I'm going, yeah, you're going to die. You know, Sunset Boulevard could have for been, sure, for sure, could have been a movie. You're right. In hackier hands, could have been a movie where it's like it introduces 50 characters, and you're like anybody could have killed Joe, but not really. If anything, you think yeah. either Norma does it, or maybe Max does it. But even so, no matter which one of them does it, we know why. It's all the same reason, which is him getting swept up in this. You know, for sure, world. for sure. So I, I mean, I, I I agree with the uh, with the the intention behind it um i don't know that it was the same intention as uh as amor but but i do think that um there is something to be said for billy wilder out of the gate saying um this guy's destined for this and no matter what he does this is how it plays out so you're watching a man with on you know on uh, whose days are numbered I, I think that that's i i i think that that helps in the sense that you perhaps don't ever get as attached to him in the same way or or at the very least you aren't sort of sitting around wondering but i don't I, the truth is that if you remove the 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 opening i'm not sure that i ever would have thought he was going to get shot by her like if anything he's removed the the surprise element of her shooting him and him dying at the end um, but perhaps that's just billy walder's way of you know thumbing convention in the eye yeah, I mean, I, 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 I hear the, I, I hear the idea behind it. I'm not sure that, that this has the same levels of suspense. I, I love that he does it. Don't get me wrong, but I, I don't know that, uh, I don't know what the film looks like without it. I think it definitely, um, to get to that, to sort of get to that end point of, okay, we got to the end where Joe's dead. This is the end of the movie, right? And then it keeps going, reframing the entire movie as Joe is disposable. Norma is yep. always going to be the one in front of the camera begging for her close up. Well, because mm -hmm. Joe is not Joe isn't even a writer, he's just the new monkey. He is. 
You know, True. he's he shows up right also, when the monkey's on the way out. It also says something about how Billy Wilder perceives writers in this town, specifically movie writers. As I'm sure you guys know, you know, when it comes to, you know, there aren't there aren't a lot of uber powerful feature screenwriters in Hollywood. Directors are the ones that have all the power for the most part. That's why you have writer directors sometimes. But if you're a writer on a movie, the power is in the hands of the director. Now, in television, the power is in the hands of the writer because more times than not, directors are are a gun for hire for individual episodes. But the, re- the reason I bring this up is there are people, I guarantee you, there are people all around this planet that think that actors are making up their dialogue. Oh, yeah. That, that think that they're just just, you know, hitting their mark and saying things that just come to them. They are the face of the products that we make, right? So they're going to be perhaps the most important or the most powerful. And you see that in this film, which is you see an actor shoot a writer <laughs> and say, yeah. and say, these are my words. Well, it's definitely you, you, to get to hit back to his empathy thing as a writer, what maybe one of the best writers Hollywood's ever had that he definitely feels some empathy for these writers because he knows that they're just at the beck and call of producers that think they know better or crazy actors in their decrepit mansions or whatever that they have to scrape by to get whatever little crumbs they can get off the table and where it feels like he knows that a movie's built on the script and it's uh the writer's gonna get shot uh, and this the movie star is gonna be the one lavished with all the praise even though this guy's the one that made the story possible and I, I do love, you know, it's a little moment, but I do just love that moment when he's, you know, Joe is, is uh, chewing out Betty and says, you know, you would have turned down Gone with the Wind. And the producer goes, no, that was me. I thought who wanted to see a Civil War picture? It, it just, a, you know, not much of the movie is Billy Wilder being, like you said, that Robert Altman, the player-esque fuck Hollywood. But I do like that one little moment of, Oh, that scene you know, is the most, the most player-esque is the scene yeah. with the studio executive for sure. I would say that and the scene with his agent who he can't get on the phone so he has to basically he has to basically charge him on a golf course to try yeah. to get a conversation with him. And there's definitely a lot of jabs at Hollywood. Um and I would also argue that my guess is that this movie when it came out must have been scathing. Now it's it seems uh downright uh, playful. Well, but you do kind of you do kind of wonder if and I, I hate to say, this, do you do kind of wonder if the people watching it were aware if all of them were aware of the joke? In a way, not, you know, not that it's a comedy, but just kind of like, yeah. how, you know, we, we know enough about people, you know, we know, we, we all know enough actors and, and people in, in the industry to kind of know there's not always that level of self-awareness there. Hell, Hedda Hopper shows up as herself to play a parasite gossip columnist. <laughs> like she, she, he got Hedda Hopper to show up in the film to basically sh- yeah. be a vulture. Yeah. And she gladly did it. So... You gotta, you gotta wonder if maybe a couple people saw this movie, and even though it was ripping them to shreds, would just sat there confidently going, "Well, that's not me." I just love the idea. Of, I love the the image of Kirk Douglas watching this movie, laughing his ass off, and saying, "I'm doing my next picture with this fucking guy." <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh boy, it's amazing. It's 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 something. It really well, is. didn't this movie like kind of bomb when it came out? Or like, I know it was a big awards player, but didn't it like not get the greatest? Like, bo- like play at the box office, or am I misremembering something? I I didn't uh, see anything one way or the other. You might be right. I mean, that is all. It had but... a budget of one point seven five, box office of five million. So you know, do the 
you do the math, yeah. I'm sure it, it did just fine. But um, yeah, uh, well, maybe it was um, no, it was Ace in the Hole that I'm, I'm okay, misremembering. Yeah. Ace in the Hole that one that did not do well. Yeah, um, yeah that bombed big for him. No, this was, and you're right, this was a big awards player. I I have this one fact here that it was one of only 13 films to be nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, and Best Director. And, uh, and only one screenplay. <laughs> correct. Correct. Uh, well, to be fair, if it was going to win one thing, it's going to be a Billy Wilder screenplay. I mean, and let's be real. All About Eve is a fucking, it's a great movie. All About Eve is a great movie. I, I will say, and we're, we're going to talk about it at some point. It is one of those movies that I feel like I maybe respect. I, 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 en- I enjoy All About Eve, but I definitely, I, I know if I had the ballot, I would have gone Sunset Boulevard over All About Eve just oh i well, i, I would have done the same but. that's you know this is this is like one of those years like when the best picture field is so crowded and there's just like oh well, what's gonna win this what's gonna win that and then you go oh well quentin tarantino wrote a movie so i mean just give him screenplay yeah you're right you're right yeah, yeah. I, I i think that sunset boulevard is a better movie than all about eve but you know all about eve is is a tremendous also skewering of of you know of hollywood haven't seen that one um, excited to watch it it's really it's very very good and it's it's very awesome. funny and betty davis is tremendous in it like it's 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 a great movie i, I it's not a film that i remember when i watched sunset boulevard a couple weeks ago and i was like how did this not win and i was like oh okay fair enough yeah like, i think i think what ends up hurting all about eve is just that while other movies have parodied sunset boulevard you know they haven't quite stolen the formula whereas a lot of movies have kind of taken the sort of dynamic of all about eve and done it a little less well and so when you finally watch it you it's hard to to not draw those comparisons you know it's the same way people talk about you know when you finally read john carter of mars you're like i've seen this a thousand times but it was the the one that was telling that story first yeah i mean it's it's similar to sunset boulevard in the same way you know it's like if if you've if you've seen you know movies that skewer hollywood um you watch this and you're like uh okay yeah this is the first one you know, you look at the, uh, you know, the other nominees. I did actually watch the other Best Picture nominees. So I did watch Born Yesterday. It's fine. I watched uh, King Solomon's Mines, which was uh, weirdly nominated. And then the original Father of the Bride. With uh, Spencer uh, Tracy. With, with Spencer Tracy, yeah. Meanwhile, like, other things in there are like Asphalt Jungle. Nah, they didn't nominate that. Adam's Rib. Nah, fuck that. But uh, <laughs> Father of the Bride. They make weird choices sometimes, you know. You're saying the first mistake they ever made wasn't? giving it to green book <laughs> you know it's 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 the academy's made mistakes before <laughs> green book you're kidding me right yeah this uh, isn't a hallowed institution that gets it right 99.9 percent of the time uh we maybe will personally feel like maybe the uh, the national film registry doesn't get it right uh every every single time but i'm excited you know i'm certainly i mean this is the i i i do have to thank you this is the this is the we did like a test episode but this is the first actual episode we've recorded with someone and we're uh and I knew you were the first person I wanted to get uh, to on for it. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I truly, I, I, as it should go without saying, I really would love to come back. Um, I would love to talk about E.T. There's a whole bunch of other movies on there for sure that I, that I absolutely would love, love to talk about. Yeah. Just be aware that the inevitable E.T. episode uh, will probably involve 15 minutes where Tom just unplugs his headphones and i go off on a tangent about the et ride in florida so just be prepared for that yeah no i i will i'll take whatever you know as long as i get to you know expound about my love of et i'm i'm great and i have you have you ever ridden the ride that's a real question have you ever ridden the ride i have not it is one of the most magical experiences you'll ever have in your life you get to sit on the little bike as elliot et pops up in the basket 
This is the shit I have to deal with every day. Uh, just like, I don't, I don't go on rides. <laughs> wait, so I, wait, I, wait. No rides at all. I don't really like theme parks. I don't really like rides. I went to Disneyland for the first time. I think it was last year. I, I You know, I did Pirates of the Caribbean. I did a couple of them. But, like, it's just not... I just don't like being shaken like I'm in a fucking martini shaker. I just don't know why people like feeling like they're going to die. I feel like that all the time. I have enough anxiety in my life, so I just I stand know. by the fact that I remember when you when you were last in New York and we were talking and I I asked like are you all right and you're like I don't like the city. It's really cramped. It makes me anxious like I and I I don't really dig New York. And then uh the next day I got out to Burbank, got yeah. in my hotel, yeah, looked exactly. at all of the wide open hills around me and the trees. <laughs> I think I messaged you immediately like I get it now. I get it. This is pleasant. This is wonderful. I appreciate I appreciate you guys having me on. I really, really do, and and uh, and we'll we'll do it again soon. All right, thanks, buddy. Thank you so much for coming by. You know, it is sort of interesting because we didn't really discuss the film prior to recording, but um, you guys did sort of mention that anybody who does revisit this film or experiences this film for the first time sort of has a disconnect. They sort of just disregard it. Of oh yeah, okay, this is the first, and that's sort of what I my initial reaction watching this for the first time was and. Um, I feel really good about the direction of the conversations that we could potentially have moving forward. Did you know, so this was your first time watching Sunset Boulevard? Yeah, I've never, I had never seen this movie before. Mm -mm. And did you, so you, you dug it then, I take it? You were, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who, uh, you know, spent the the good chunk of his young adult life thinking he was going to be an actor or in the traditional sense and and sort of that internal conflict of how much of yourself you're willing to give in order to make it in the business it 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 is frustrating it it made that transition from being like a a big fish in a small pond to being a small fish in a big pond that much more daunting and that much more exhausting um and i I guess it's i did find it fascinating that a, a movie that's already what this got like 1950 so at least 70 years old now um, you know, is still, you know, the, the themes around it and the critiques of Hollywood are still as, as poignant as, as they were back then. Now, Tom, where does it rank for you in terms of Billy Wilder films? Cause I know you're a big Wilder fan. Uh, for me right now, I gotta say it would be third, uh, Ace in the Hole is my number one and the apartment's number two, but I mean, that's a one, two, three that you could, uh, you could put up at the World Series and be uh, happy with the results. Given that we just watched Sunset Boulevard um, and the theme surrounding it, what movie would you nominate for the registry that is closely related to those themes but isn't a part of the registry currently? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, for those of you who haven't listened before, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pick a film. So it does have to fit the criteria. It does have to be an American film, and it does have to have been at least 10 years old. For this one, for Sunset Boulevard, I kind of knew right away what film uh, is not in the registry, but that I would like to be, uh, which is, I think, and, uh, you know, because we're talking about, a, you know, what what's Sunset Boulevard really about is it's a falling star. You know, it's a it's the way that the industry chews somebody up and spits them out, somebody who used to be great, and now they don't matter so much anymore. And I think there's another film that does that about a particular subset of the film industry. And I'm amazed it's not in the registry. And I don't believe any of this man's films are, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. The idea of making a film about the 70s porn industry turning to the 80s porn industry uh, would sound salacious from anybody else. Looking at Sunset Boulevard and the way that it treats all of its characters with so much empathy and so much heart. And what made Boogie Nights remarkable and what made Paul Thomas Anderson a name 
was just the remarkable level of compassion and empathy that he brought to the characters of uh, Dirk Diggler and uh, Roller Girl. And, you know, they, it's an incredibly compassionate film and a remarkable portrait of an industry going through a tumultuous change that sort of reflects, reflects the, the broader change in Hollywood. I mean, you know, and, and of course, you could draw parallels between, say, Julianne Moore's character and Gloria Swanson or so on and so forth, but it just is uh, it, it's such a beautifully empathetic portrait of the way that an industry could destroy people if they don't have people around them to to be their family and their support so i would i would 100 percent say without a doubt in my mind uh boogie nights should be in the national film registry that's a uh yeah that's a good fucking choice um that's what i th- i thought you and i were gonna have the exact same one i was very worried so I'm, I'm very excited to hear what you've got no that's actually i i had two or three here one of which that got uh nixed because we're sticking to the eligibility rules here um so yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Yeah, Barton Fink. Uh, it feels like it's dealing with a lot of similar stuff that uh, Sunset Boulevard's doing, but it's doing it from a more skewed, almost like mirror world version of things, where it definitely feels like it's not trying to be reality. It feels more like a heightened satirical version of reality where you get the sense the Coens like Billy Wilder understand this business. They've been doing it, dealing with it for a bit and they're trying to skewer it. Um, they understand the, uh, the business sensibilities that need to be uh, a part of uh, the filmmaking industry, but also how the, the industry kind of focuses more on the business instead of the art. Um, Barton Fink himself feels very much like a Joe character. Um, maybe a little more high set status as a well-respected playwright, but one who has to just try to become a writer and deal with the just the slaughterhouse that, that you know the industry is. Um, it's cutting. It's funny. It's dark. It's scary. It's got some amazing performances by Totoro and especially John Goodman. Um, it feels in many ways like the dark demented like grand grandchild to sunset boulevard and um for both of us that that aren't the biggest uh cohen acolytes in the world this is one of my favorites from them and uh it's it's one that i think would play um really well as the the B-side in a double feature to Sunset Boulevard, uh, where you want a little more. You went through that insane, tragic, crazy story, and now you want something a little more that'll goose you a little more, that'll make you maybe kind of just make you laugh a little more and maybe not leave you with so such a miserable fucking feeling in your, your gut. But uh, Barton Fink, to me, is um, of the eligible movies, I think, is the one I would go for. I dig it. I, I that's a great pick. I, I hadn't even thought of that one, so I'm really on. I'm really on board for it. Uh, and just as a just a hint into the uh, the old mind here, if we if we weren't going to abide by the rules I, of ten I, years, of course, yep, yep, yep. Once, once upon a time in Hollywood, of course it, yeah, of course it is. But not even just because we love it, but it like just from talking about Sunset Boulevard, so much of that is kind of yeah. in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
No, the minute you said, well, you know, because we can't go by the 10 year rule, like, oh, I know. I know. I know what he's thinking. All right. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening. And of course, a special thank you to Phil Isco for joining us again to help kick off our new format. If you like what you heard, you can follow Phil on Twitter and Instagram at PMIscove. You can also follow our co-hosts on Instagram and Twitter as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at RagingBowl1990. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.